All right, so whether it's the Bible on your app or the Bible in your lap, go ahead and open your Bibles. We're all about open Bibles at Coastway Church. So open your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 12 through 20 today. And we're in week two of a series called He Is, Beholding Jesus and the Gospel of John. And the, the simple truth is everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Everyone has some feeling about Jesus, who he is, what he's about. But here's, here's how we think about it at Coastway is our primary source about Jesus is not the New York Times. It's not National Geographic. It's not Fox News. It's not CNN. If we want to know the Son of God, we need to go to the Word of God. And so that's, if, if we want to know, if, if, if you wanted someone to know about you, you would probably just want to tell them directly, right? Well, that's what Jesus does with these I am statements, is he says, this is who I am. And so that's what we're doing over, over seven weeks. Last week, uh, we, we picked up in week one, uh, and we saw how Jesus is the bread of life, who alone will fill and fulfill. And this week, we're going to look at another uh, of the seven statements, and each one begins with I am. And you're like, a little help for those of us in the back. What is this all about? Well, it's so genius, only God could think of it. Because by revealing him this way, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I am the solution. I am the answer to all your fears, to all your faults, and to all of your failures. It's like, God, do you care enough to walk into my sorrow? He's like, I am. God, are, are you big enough to deal with my sin? I am. God, are you worthy enough of these sacrifices? And God's response is, I am. And what I love about this is he's not the great I was. He is a present tense God. He's the great I am. And the best time for you to experience the great I am is right here and right now. And when you're dealing with all of the things that you are surely not, you can know that he surely is. Because who he is changes everything that we are. And this week what we're going to see, we're going to see that Jesus is the light of the world who leads us out of darkness. He doesn't just say, hey, you're in darkness, get out on your own. No, he comes and he, he picks us up. He brings us close and he says, I'm going I'm to walk with you. I'm going to carry you. I'm going to be with you in the darkness. And so I would just ask this question, just leading question, for, uh, just to get us going. Why are so many people moving to Myrtle Beach? Okay, that's a, that's a fair question. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's so many people who are moving to Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach grew by 36% in population between 2010 and 2020. Over half a million people are here now. 1,500 people move here every single month. The average size church is between 100 and 150. This means that you could plant 10 new churches every month and you still would not keep up with the historic population boom. Just the new people, not the already people. And there's no signs of slowing down. And I think that there's a few reasons why. I mean, the university is here. There's, there's golf, whether you're into you know, putt-putt golf or the, the real golf, whatever kind of golf you play, or whether you just like, like me, it's just like, I like to get out on the fairway and just like drive that cart on the cart path. I think that that's a lot of fun. Or maybe you're just like, hey man, there's lower taxes there's, than maybe where you're from, or there's all these attractions, there's all this adrenaline, it's more affordable. I'll tell you the biggest reason why people are coming. The sunny beaches. The sunny beaches. That's, that's, the, that's the reason why people, 14 million people every year visit the Grand Strand. And what, what are they doing? They're, they're coming after our sunny beaches. Why is this? Because people love the sunshine. 
And here's what I, I think is so ironic. It's like you'll talk to somebody and like they'll come to the beach this time of year and they'll go back home. And they're like, how was the beach? They're like, oh, it wasn't that great. It was cold. It was windy. What are they saying? I was actually going to the sun. I, I, even before I was going to the beach, because the sun wasn't shining, I didn't have a really good time. And it's, it's interesting, we spend more time under the sun than we do in the water. Have you ever thought about this? It's like, we're, we're poolside, we're beachside, we're worshiping. That's, that's what's going on right there. It's like, sun, make me tan, or, or sun, make me look good. And now for me, I need to be careful, all right? I'm, we try to be self-aware, around here. And I know I don't have a coastal complexion, but God does have a sense of humor. And so he moved, moved us here. And, you know, I just like sunscreen is my, is my friend. And so I, I would go out during, uh, during the, like when the pandemic was just like really surging and I would have my mask on outdoors. And I was like, I'm going to go back inside and I'm going to have a mask line. Did anybody get the mask line? It was like, it's a new tan line between like 2020 and like up to uh, recently. And I just, you got to be careful. But here's, here, here it is. Something inside of us longs for light. We need it. We crave it as soon as we wake up. Well, typically, what do we do? We open the, the, the blinds, the curtains, and we, you know, we turn on the lights. We let the sun just flood in. Kids need a nightlight. It's like, I'm scared. There's, there's monsters in the dark. It's interesting how intuitive children can be. Because as we're going to see today, that monsters do live in the dark. And, and monsters like to, to lurk in the dark. But we have a heavenly father who comes in and lets light shine and turns the lights on and is bigger than the monsters. And as long as he is with us, then we can deal with the darkness. But where did we get this? Where did we get this longing for light? Well, it's amazing how our desires flow from God's design. You see... The longing for light is a longing for God. God has put eternity in your heart, whether you realize it or not. And every time you long for light, what you're longing for is the source of light. What you're longing for is the giver of light. And what happens is if you really trace the Bible, you'll see this, this divine design pattern that the Bible begins with light, the Bible continues with light, and the Bible ends with light. I want to show this to you in Genesis 1-3. You don't have to turn there. It should be on the screen. But then we're going to jump into John 8 in just a moment. But this is going to be really kind of setting up what we're, what, the significance of what Jesus is about to say. Genesis 1-3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And then if you fast forward to God's people, they're in uh, Egypt in slavery, and God delivers them with a mighty hand, and they are led out into the wilderness by a pillar of fire that, gu that guides them by night, that leads them out of the darkness, leads them through the darkness. You go to Luke chapter 2, Jesus is born, and the angels appear, and there's light. You see the wise men trying to find Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. They are led by a light. You see uh, a terrorist converted into a missionary, Saul, on the Damascus road. He sees Jesus revealed in light. And so from the beginning and throughout the Bible, here's what we see. Light is good. Darkness is bad. And so you, your friends, they ask you about the Bible. It's like, what do you think about the Bible? You could absolutely say it's absolutely lit. That's what I think about the Bible. It is lit. You can tell your friends. And so as we go through, Travis Scott didn't think of that. Jesus Christ thought of that. So as we go through John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20, here's the whole idea. To have life beyond this world, we must follow the light of the world. 
To have life beyond this world, we must follow the light of the world. You think, yeah, that sounds good. How do I do that? Well, thought about you. Along the way, I want to show you three ways. Three ways that we can have a life beyond this world by following the light of the world. So let's get moving. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke. All right, stop right there. There's, there's a design pattern. Do you see it? It's when God speaks, light shines. Jesus came doing what? Speaking. What was happening in the beginning? God was speaking. And when Jesus speaks, I don't know if you've noticed, storms are stilled. Eyes are open. Hearts are moved. The left out are chosen. And he spoke to who? He spoke to them saying, okay, so who's Jesus talking to right here? We've got to get some context right here. Well, the timing of Jesus' teaching, it's very interesting, comes during a major Jewish holiday that's called the Feast of Booths. And so the, basically the Feast of Booths commemorated the event in the Old Testament when God's people were led out of bondage in Egypt um, by a pillar of fire by, by night. And this was God's presence among his people. Anytime they would see that pillar, they would know that's God's presence. God has not left us. Not, God's not forsaken us. This was before GPS. This was before night lights. And so the people needed a little extra help. But for centuries, God's people understood this simple truth. To follow the light is to follow the Lord. But to leave the light is to leave the Lord. And when, when, they, when the people got to the promised land, they instituted this holy day. And this is where we get the word holiday. A holiday is a holy day. And so basically people would go on this week-long camping trip uh, at the Feast of Booths. They would actually go outside like they were in the wilderness, and they would make these tents, and they would sleep in these tents and sit around candles and campfires by night, just like they did in the wilderness. It was, and I know we love our fireworks in South Carolina. This was like the Jewish version of the 4th of July. Everybody was camping and, and lighting fires. It was great. And so we gather, they would gather at the temple too, and they would sing. They would rejoice. They would dance. And so as the Feast of Booths closed out, the priests, who were the mediators between God and man in the Old Testament, they would bring out these candlesticks, and they would light them. And they would do it in the temple in such a way to where the, everybody's focus would see the greatest light in Jerusalem was from the temple. And what that was symbolizing was that the greatest light that you could ever know is from God because God's presence was in the temple. And so all the while, the candles and campfires around these booths and tents would multiply throughout the city. Have you ever been to a Christmas candlelight service before? It's like that, That's what it would have looked like all throughout the city of God. And so simply put, the Feast of Booths, it was illuminated. And so at this feast, Jesus says this. Now, see the significance here. John 8, 12b. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So question, this is a framing question, in what ways does light give life? Well, last week we noted how the Bible gives us two concepts for life, and this is very helpful for understanding the type of life that Jesus came to give us and the type of life that we should ultimately be pursuing. So the two concepts of life, the first is uh, bios. So bios is where we get the word biology. This is a life that is for now, and it's, it's a quantity of life. It's a long physical life. Bios is used nine times in the New Testament. But then there's another type of life, and it was interesting hearing our community group like trying to pronounce this word. 
um, in community groups last week. It was, we had all kinds of renditions. It was incredible. But we're just going to stick with Zoe. Zoe life. This is forever life. It's a quality of life. It's life beyond the grave. It's life beyond your circumstances. It's, it's, it's a filled and fulfilled life. G- this word is used 135 times in the New Testament. It's the primary way that Jesus talks about life. And so what we see is that light gives us bios life, but it also gives us zoe life. So let me show you a little bit of both. So bios life. So when our, when our skin is exposed to the sun, it creates what is called vitamin D which is essential for optimal health. And what was interesting is WebMD did a research uh, study uh, during, uh, during the pandemic, and what they noticed is that patients who, contract, who uh, contracted the virus, who got COVID, and had a vitamin D deficiency were 14 times more likely to have a severe case of COVID that could escalate and that could get really bad really quick. And it, so it, it, it makes sense that the greatest source of light, you, you think that the sun is there and that's just astrology? No, that's theology. What God is doing is he, he's, he's saying, you think the light's powerful? You think the light gives you life? Oh, you just wait until I send you the light of the world who created the sun. But where is the sun in our solar system? It's at the very, very center. Every planet orbits around it. If we were 2% farther from the sun, we would freeze. If we were 2% closer to the sun, we would fry. Our physical bodies, what? Our bios was created for light. But here's the, here's the deal. Light gives us zoe life. Just uh, more than our bodies need the light of the sun, our souls need the light of Jesus. And if you want to see where he came to give zoe life, then you need to look at where did Jesus position him during himself during his life. Where do we see Jesus? Here's where we see Jesus. We see Jesus in the middle of lost sinners. We see Jesus in the middle of a perfectly imperfect church. We see Jesus in the middle of stubborn disciples who are slow to learn. Amen? Who's grateful? We see Jesus crucified in the middle of two criminals. So if you want to see where, where, where the light of the world came to give life, you look at where he positioned his life. He said, I, I came for the people who know that they're sick. You know, the, the people who are well, they don't need a doctor. The people who think that they can earn it, they don't need, they don't need me. They're not going to want me. They're not going to receive me. It's bad for them. But, but for those who realize it, it's, it's going to be a really, really good day. And so, uh, just like the physical sun must be at the center of our solar system for bios, Jesus must be at the center of our spiritual solar system for zoe. And so, what does this look like for us? Well, follow Jesus. That's what it looks like. You follow Jesus. He says, if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. So I want to give you three ways that we can follow the light of the world. Number one, following the light looks like leaving the darkness. Following the light looks like leaving the darkness. Notice what Jesus says in verse 12. He says, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So what is darkness? Well, to give clarity, darkness is an all-encompassing term and theme throughout Scripture that represents a life without God. And so whereas light brings out 
the best in us, darkness literally brings out the worst in us. And that's what makes the metaphor so vivid. So here's what happens. It's like you wake up in the middle of the night and your kids, they left their Legos out. Okay, I guarantee you this, this is when you're going to step on them. And it's going to be in the middle of the night and you're going to be like half-dressed and you, know, you step on the kids' Legos and you're not singing Chris Tomlin when you do. You're, <laughs> you're, you're speaking in cursive and it's just like this. It's, a, it's just not your best moment. Let's not replay that, please. Uh, uh, guess which state has the highest levels of violent crime in the nation? Alaska. And guess which state sees the least amount of sunlight? Alaska. In fact, the northernmost regions will experience two months with no sunlight. They won't see the sun for two months. And here's what residents report, that the months of darkness are terrifying, they're depressing, and they are riddled with crime. People become desensitized to the crime because they get used to the darkness. And so here's what you need to understand. Jesus came to push back the darkness by bringing us out of darkness. And the way he does this is he pushes back the broken desires. That's sin. Sin is a broken desire. And what what does sin do? Well, sin, essentially, um, it's what happens when we put ourselves in the place of God. It's what happens when we try to experience God without God. And so we're using a pursuit of God to actually reject God. And what it does is it keeps us in darkness. And there's two types of darkness that I want to deal with right here. There's a darkness of disbelief, and then there's a darkness of disobedience. And the way, a way to frame this would, I don't know if you know what an EKG is. Maybe you've had an EKG. It's a heart check. It's going to see how is your heart? How healthy is your heart? Is there a pulse here? Is there life here? Is there irregularities here? And so I want to show you an EKG for a disbelieving heart. And just so you know what we're talking about with disbelief, this is someone who is blind to the light, who has yet to surrender their life, the sum of their life, fully and finally to Jesus Christ. And this person is outside of Christ, and it's a a scary place to be. I want to address this with as much compassion and clarity as I possibly can because there's a lot weighing on on this moment if you're in this place. So number one, uh, just the question that will help perform an EKG on whether or not you have a disbelieving heart is, do I believe that my greatest problem is something other than sin? If so, you see, sin separates you from God. And so what you're saying, if you think that your problem is your greatest problem is your health, um, or it's, it's your finances, or it's your relationships. If you think that's your greatest problem, um, or whatever the case may be, or that your bracket was busted, I know we, we get fresh in the flesh real quick, don't we? If you think that's your greatest problem, then here's what, you, here's what you don't understand, is that you think that you can live your life without God. And the next question is this, is my truest hope for salvation found in something other than Jesus? Just see all of the above. Is it in being a really healthy person? Is it in having a lot of money? Is it being really attractive physically or having a popularity? That's, that's called seeking Zoe in bios. You're seeking life in things that lead to death. We talked about that a little bit last week. 
And so here's what I want to say. If, if, if you answered yes to one or both of those questions, it's a very scary place. It's, it's, it's a very serious place. And, and the reason why is because Jesus would say that you are, you are caught up in disbelief and that you are cut off in darkness. And that what you experience in this world is the closest to heaven that you will ever be. It's here today and it's going to be gone tomorrow. And here's what I want to say to you if this is your heart, if this is where you're at, is that the light of Jesus is purposed and pointed to shine in if you will open up. And here's the, th- here's the thing about the gospel. Here's the thing about the light of the gospel is that it's not easy. It's not cheap. It is simple. So it's, it's really it's as simple as if you're just like, how does, if you go into a room and you want the lights to come on, what do you do? You flip, flip the switch. Okay, so that's just a metaphor for how does the, the switch flip on in your heart to where the light of Jesus comes in and the darkness is pushed out. You see that they can't dwell together. It, as soon as the light comes in, the darkness has to go. It's really as simple as, just a helpful way to think about this is A, B, C. A, you admit that you are a sinner by nature and by choice. And you admit that your sin is your greatest problem and that your sin against God is cutting you off from God. And, and you, you don't, but you don't stop with just admitting it because you could go on in it just admitting it. Then you believe. You say, I'm going to believe. And believe is not intellectual assent. It's, it's wholehearted hope. That's what belief is. It's so much bigger than just, I, I believe that uh, there's, there's going to be inventory at the grocery store when I go there. It's like, okay, that, that, that doesn't move you. That's not significant. It's, no, I believe that when my life is sinking, I still have salvation. I believe that Jesus has not left me nor forsaken me. I believe that I will spend forever in a future home with Him. And so what this belief does is it looks like you transferring trust from your sin and yourself and even from Satan, to Jesus. You say, this, this is where my belief is going to be. And what it looks like, how do you externalize that? You confess it. The, the Bible talks about confessing. And so you, you confess. To be a Christian is to be confessional. It's to, it's to confess the, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, which is that it is salvation alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. That is the purity of our confession. You say, I'm going to do that. And a great verse for you to really rumble with and wrestle with would be Romans 10, 9 and 10, where the apostle says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, He's not just here to bail you out, He's here to be your King. Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe in are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So this is more important than what you have for lunch. This, this is more important than your physical feels right now. This is more important than that thing that might be distracting you or that thing that you want to check on your phone. This is solemn, this is serious, and I pray that you would take this step if you have a disbelieving heart. Next, disobedience. This is the person who has seen the light. This is person who has been bought back and brought back, this is the Christian. You genuinely believe 
but you are consciously walking in some area of darkness. And this is where the devil turns us into a yard sale as Christians. And let me show you, I think this is the most miserable person on the planet. I can tell you because I was this person. There were years of my early Christian walk where there were, there were areas of darkness that I didn't want to bring into the light. It's not that I wasn't born again. It was, it's not that I wasn't brought back. It's just that I'm like, Jesus, I, I don't want to give this, this room in the house of my heart to you just yet. And here's why you get miserable. Because you can't fully enjoy sin because you're born again. And you can't fully enjoy Christ because you're walking in sin. It's awful. No, don't stay here, please. Here's an EKG for a disobedient heart just to give clarity. Is there a sin pattern in my life that remains in the dark? Loved ones, there is no victory in the shadows. There is no future in the dark. What you cover, God will uncover. But what you uncover, God will cover. There is no hidden area in your life that he doesn't know about. Next question, are there areas of my life where I take exception to God's will? How do we know God's will? We go to God's word. What is clearly revealed in God's word? God's, God's will is that you live out of your identity in him. This means that I'm, I'm, instead of me being an owner, I'm going to be a steward, and I'm going to be generous. Instead of me being a master, then I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to serve other people. In, instead of me being an idolater, I'm going to be a worshiper. I'm going to worship God, uh, seek to know, love, and obey Him above all else. And so what we see right here is that we, we as Christians often think that we're, that we're exceptional, that God's going to give us a hall pass on His will. doesn't work that way. Here's the encouragement for you. Bring your darkness into the light. And here's why you should, because Jesus is better than your darkness. And let me tell you, let me tell you why he is. Because even in your disobedience, God does not love you any less. And this is what makes Jesus better than your disobedience. is <laughs> because his love is unconditional. His affection is fixed on you. There was a guy named David who tried this disobedient thing in the Old Testament. Didn't go well. He got run out of the building. Psalm, Psalm 32, uh, 3 says, when I kept silent, it was like my bones just wasted away. The life was just flushed out of me. But when I came into the light, forgiveness flooded. And I felt free again. Because I wasn't, I wasn't a hypocrite. I wasn't putting on a front wearing a mask. And we have the hope of the gospel. This is the light of life, is that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Verse 13, so the Pharisees, so these guys, they're a group of religious scholars who are really good at being good. Here's what you need to know. They're better than you are. They know more of the Bible than you. They, they're probably more generous. Uh, they're probably more intentional about the Sabbath. You know, on their refrigerator, it's, it's awesome. You get those little Coastway Kids crafts and stuff. You put it on the refrigerator. Um, so basically, the Pharisees, they had 613 laws on their refrigerator, and they knew all of them. And they were like trying to do all, all of them. And so they said to him, the Pharisees, the, the guys who are good at being good, you are bearing witness about yourself to Jesus. 
Your testimony is not true. Okay. All right. So have you ever been around people who care more about policies than people? That's religion. This is religion. They're, 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 they're pulling a policy from Deuter- Deuteronomy 19.15, and they're missing the person who's the fulfillment of that whole policy, the person who made that policy. And that's what religion does. It puts policies ahead of people, and when you get around these people, it's just toxic. Verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Don't you want to be led by someone who knows where they're going? You don't want a blind guide. This is why we follow Jesus. You do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. You're just like, I thought Jesus was the judge of the whole world. Well, here you need to understand, he came at first to save the sheep. He will come at last to sentence the wolves and the goats. So his primary... His premier on earth was, I'm going to save so that you don't have to be condemned. So that when I come back, you won't be condemned. John 3, 17, for the Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through himself. So he's talking about what's my purpose right here, right now. Verse 16, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Uh, For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. So here's what I want to show you. The next way that we follow the light, number two. Following the light looks like rejecting religion. Following, and you're like, what religion? I thought that's what Christianity was all about. No, 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 you got it twisted. Religion is about what we do for God. The gospel is about what God did for us. A very, very different starting point. Religion says, in the beginning, man. The gospel says, in the beginning, God. And so so do you see what's going on here? You have a bunch of religious people who claim to know God best, openly rejecting God first. They're using the Word of God to reject the Son of God. That's what these fat-headed, hard-hearted Pharisees are always up to. And we see it in verse 13. They've already said your testimony is not true. So they're saying, Jesus, you are a liar. So there's, there's kind of two basic ways that we can reject God. We can reject God with bad works, and we can reject God with good works. Bad works is rebellion, And so basically, salvation comes through law-breaking. And the steady refrain of rebellion is, enjoy yourself. (laughs) The other way we reject God is through our good works. This is what we call religion. Religion is salvation through law-keeping. And the steady refrain of religion is, earn it yourself. And I just want to be transparent with you. I'm a recovering Pharisee. And I... I don't know if you can relate to this, but my human instinct is to lead with law before love and to focus more about sin in the window out there, outside of me, than sin in the mirror, the darkness that still needs to be cast out. I was reminded of this uh, recently. Eleanor and I, we go uh, every Friday, we go on a daddy-daughter date. And so um, we we had to have a little come-to-Jesus moment on our daddy-daughter date this past uh, Friday. Let me tell you. So basically, she—I mean, she was just out here acting like a redneck at a picnic. And the, the simple truth is, uh, we in the woods home, we try not to negotiate with toddlers or terrorists. They have a lot of striking similarities. They will both will both will hold you hostage, and both will will make totally unreasonable demands. And so uh, we're we're not negotiating. And I just had to sit down with Eleanor. It's like we went to the park. And then uh, we played some basketball. We were hooping it up, had a good time. And then, I mean, she just was fresh in the flesh and just like making these demands. 
And I was like, girl, we got to talk. Like, I was supposed to get you ice cream, all right? So before we go, we, you know, you know, we kind of pull the car over, you know, I, you know, get on her level. We have a little chalk talk, okay? And then we go in, we get ice cream, and it seems to be going well. And then we get back out after ice cream, and she comes back with the screen time request, all right? It always goes back to screen time. And, and I was like, okay, sweetie, since you are sweet, I'll give you a treat. And um, if my soul was a car, the Holy Spirit blue-lighted me and pulled me over. And I thought to myself, Lord Jesus, thank you that you don't say that to me. Thank you that your message to me is not, if you're sweet, I'll give you a treat. Thank you that it's since you're sunk, I will come and I will save Here's, here's religion. Religion says, I perform, therefore God is pleased. It's darkness. It's darkness. It's, it's, it's trying to save yourself. It's, it's having no category for grace. And the narrative is, I'm a good moral person who does good moral things and deserves to be rewarded for my goodness. Have you heard this? Have you thought this? Have you said this? It's a deafening giveaway that we have yet to surrender the sum of our souls to God in Christ by faith. We've yet to rumble with how much we need grace, with how broke we really are. Essentially, religion is a more sophisticated way of rejecting God. Is that we're no less filthy and we're no more worthy. Just think lipstick on a pig. It's like, doesn't help a whole lot, really. I mean, just we, we kind of see what you're up to over here. You're not pretty. Romans 3.10 says, there is none good, no, not one. And the gospel says, Jesus performed. Religion says, I performed, therefore God is pleased. The gospel says, Jesus performed, therefore God is pleased. This is light. I, I, I depend on and I desire to have the life of Jesus credited to me by faith and here's what's amazing. This is so beautiful. Right before Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, there's an account of Jesus rescuing a guilty woman from darkness. And it's in context. It's in the same chapter. And I, I want to just keep us in the same chapter, but I want to show you this. And so basically, here's what happens. The Pharisees caught her, this woman, in the act of adultery. It was likely during the Feast of Booths. So this could have very well been taking place in a tent somewhere. It was kind of out in the open, which would explain how they caught her. And so she was drug out and thrown out before Jesus. And so seething with self-righteousness, the Pharisees sound off. And here's what they say. The law says stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And I want you to see how Jesus handles this in the rescue mission. Verse 7, And as they continued to ask Him, so picture this woman, bare naked, bracing for a large rock, to come crashing into her bare skin. And she's hoping that the first rock hits her head and knocks her unconscious so that she doesn't have to experience the anguish of being stoned to death. That's, that's her position. And so Jesus stood up and said to them, verse 9, or verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What you don't see is that you're just as filthy as she is. And that's your problem. That's the problem with religion is you're no better you need me just as bad. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. 
And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. In verse 4, the Pharisees called him teacher. But in this verse, the adulterous woman calls him Lord. You see the difference of desperation? And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Where religion sees a stone, the gospel sees a substitute. I want you to see how this progresses. Notice two ways that Jesus brings light to this guilty woman's life. Number one, Jesus covers what the woman had done. He says, neither do I condemn you. And it's not because it wasn't condemnable. It's because Jesus says, I will be condemned for you. What you did is punishable by death, so what I'll do is be punished in your place. But not only covering, he's also curing. Jesus cures what the woman would do. You know what the cure for sin is? It's security. You know, sin is the ultimate way that we seek security in lesser loves and weaker arms than those of Christ. And so what Jesus says is, you're secure. I'm, I'm going to be punished in your place. You're secure. Now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. It makes me think of the song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This woman was washed white in this moment. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Rejecting religion means repenting of religion. I hope you see it. A little bit more for us to see. Verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So what I want to show you is the third way that we follow the light. It's, it's, it's right here. Following the light looks like resisting a false identity. Following the light looks like resisting a false identity. There are two sides to a false identity. I want to show these to you. It's when we believe that we aren't something that we are or that we are something that we are not. Is that we, we believe that we are something that, or we aren't something that we are, or that we are something that we are not. And what's clear right here is this Jesus knows who he is, and he knows who he isn't. And he's full of humble confidence. It's the best way to live. And so when people tried to pin a false identity on him, he never allowed it to get in him. See what's happening in verse 13. They had told him, Your testimony as the I am, as God, that you are God, is not true. And so Jesus. He confidently responds in verses 14 through 17. And what he says is, I know who I am. And then in verse 18, he comes in with this holy haymaker and asserts how the Father bears witness about me. It's like, I didn't forget my baptism. It's interesting that you forgot about that. Yeah, that happened when I was baptized and a voice from heaven descending like a dove in the Holy Spirit. And the Father said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. You want a witness? There's your witness. Rock, paper, scissors, God the Father. Boom. Checkmate. It's like, no, 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 you can't corner this guy. And what the false identity that Jesus resisted, what was it? Well, he is God, and they told him he was only a man. He is light, and they told him that he was darkness. He was told that he was something that he wasn't. And here's how this downloads for us. We're also told that we're something that we're not. And... What the false identity that we must resist is we are man, but we are told that we are God. We are darkness, 
yet we are told that we are light. And we have parades for things that we ought to have funerals over. We're proud of things that ought to make us blush. We're told that we are something we are not. And just what are the devil and the forces of darkness up to right here? It's the same old shenanigans from the beginning. They're trying to convince us that we're God, that God didn't really say, that He's holding out on you. He's trying to get us to buy this lie, and it's clever, it's crafty how he's going about it, and I want to just speak to it. Like, what's going on in our cultural moment? Well, the devil is leveraging our hyper-political, socially woke, cancel culture to get us to this place. And you sit there and you're like, I don't believe that I'm God. And it's like, oh, okay, I see, you're bougie. Well, here's, here's what you need to understand. You're not as good as you think you are. You're not. You're, you're way worse All of us are undone and unraveled. And here's where it happens. When we don't know who we are in Christ, here's what we do. We buy the lie that our greatest problem is external. It's outside of me. And it doesn't stop there. It's institutional. It's a group. It's a government. It's a race. It's a political party. That's the biggest problem. And here's our choice solution. It's to demonize institutional sin, but never deal with personal sin. And that's where the world falls apart. This is how we functionally live as if we're God. We start with the belief that the problem is not with me and my people, it's with you and your people. But what did Jesus say in verse 12? He says, I am the light of the group. No. I am the light of the United States of America. No. I am the light of the race. No. I'm the light of the Democrat. No. I'm the light of... The world. If Jesus is the light of the world, that means that none of us who are in the world can be God. And our greatest problem is that we don't see the problem. We think it's out there. We don't realize that it's in here. And here's where it all breaks down. We think that we need sociology when in reality what we need is theology. Sociology says our greatest need is to know ourselves better. This is a dark place that we don't want to dive into because, you know, if I go to the Enneagram, or excuse me, the Enneagram to learn myself, and then I go to social media to express myself, and then I start defining myself by what I say about myself. It's a digression. It's like I know myself better. Okay, I'm better than I think I am. I become God, you become worse. It's like I don't need to change, you do. You're the problem. If you would just get your sorry act together, we could stop watching the world burn and we could finally build. But until then, I'm just going to sit over here with my popcorn and pretend that I'm better than you. I, I, do you see how this thinking would devastate a marriage? Do you see how this thinking would devastate a friendship? Do you see how it would discourage kids? Do you think how, how it would disrupt work? We don't need sociology, we need theology. Theology says our greatest need is to know God better. And so we study God. What does God say? Well, God says that what we need to do is we need to know God better. And if I know God better, I become better. And if I become better, we can all become better. And it starts with personal sin before it scopes out to institutional sin. Both are problems, but we start here And so what we see is that without Jesus, the sum of our identities are infected and affected. It's a dark place where we need the light of the world to shine. And so what Jesus did is it's bold, it's beautiful in this moment. He resists a false identity right here so that he can renew in you a true identity right now. And so that when the light shines in, you don't have to be that person who was walking in the darkness who made it all about you. 
who made it all about like the, the problems were out here. The best news you could wake up to is the fact that you don't have to be God. You don't have to save yourself. You can be loved, or loved and you can be led by the light of the world. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So here's what most people want Jesus without God. They want the teachings of Jesus. They want the rescue mission of Jesus without the lordship of Jesus, without submission to Jesus. Then then there are others who want God without Jesus. Just keep God general, keep God universal, and we'll all, we'll all go to heaven and we'll all be good. But you don't get one without the other, and that's what Jesus is saying right here. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So the hour had not yet come, but it soon would come. And all throughout John's gospel, Jesus is referring to this hour that's coming. And it's the darkest hour in all of human history. And here's what happens. It's when the light of the world would be plunged into complete darkness on the cross and in our place. And hanging there, here's what he would do. He would take every dark deed that has ever been done by you into himself. He would die instead of you. He would die because of you. And one of the ways that we can think about what was going on right here, when Jesus would go on to the cross, the light of the world would be plunged into darkness. Have you ever seen a solar eclipse before? There was one that happened back in 2017, and you know we would put those goofy glasses on, and we would like go out. I don't know if you guys had those. But what would happen is the, the sun would be engulfed, the, the reflection of the sun would be engulfed by the shadow of the moon. And so for a moment everything would turn dark that was supposed to be light. And this, this, here's what happens. is This is a powerful way to think about what was going on on the cross. Is that it, it seemed like darkness had overcome. But soon enough, what we see is that the darkness would turn into light. And that the, the light would not be overcome by the darkness. It would shine greater and it would shine brighter. And here's, here's how it's personal for you. is Oftentimes, you feel like you're walking through darkness. I'm walking through darkness physically. I'm walking through darkness emotionally. I'm walking through darkness spiritually in some way, shape, or form. And here's the assurance of the light of the world for you today. It's that if you are being led by the light of the world, then you are being led out of darkness. It's just a solar eclipse. And it's going to go a lot sooner than you realize. It's not going to last as long as you really think that it does. And I want to I show this to you, Revelation 21, 23, where it's all headed. Here's the hope. And the city, this is the city of God, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 